Good morning. As Nick just said, my name is Marshall, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I do hope you can stay for the congregational meeting. Members, just visitors, just curious folks, whomever. It'll actually be probably one of the more important congregational meetings we've had in a while. They're all important, I suppose, but uh, this one will be especially uh, informational. So I do hope you can stay uh, for the congregational meeting. Very, I got to tell you, I'm very excited about what uh, we have to show uh, of new building plans. Very, very excited. So I do thank you so much, Dave, for being with us. It is just an honor to have you with us and to be partnered with you. Uh, really great to have uh, the founder, the visionary behind Safe Families with us. Uh, if you're able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We are reading one of the more famous stories in the history of the world, the story of the Good Samaritan. I've actually never preached on this passage. Uh, it is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. In your pew Bible, that's on page 869. I encourage you to open your Bibles to those pages and to keep them open uh, as I go through and preach on these passages. If you have a large print Bible, it's on page 1032. But this is God's Word. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is it written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. But he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay when, you, when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Pray with me. Lord, as we come to familiar words, a story that I'm imagining everyone within the sound of my voice has heard many of us multiple times, I pray that in these familiar words, you would do your work by your spirit. I pray that whatever we need to hear from this story, both those who listen as well as the one who teaches, that we would. Would you do this by your spirit? For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. I can hear, I'm a, my voice is really deep today. Uh, I can hear myself in the feedback monitor. I wish I had this voice all the time. One of the most popular classes at the university I attended, Vanderbilt, when I was there was called Beethoven and the Beatles. Beethoven and the Beatles. 
Uh, and this super engaging professor taught a class about these, this one group and this one individual, these musical genius, the Beethoven and the Beatles. And someone asked him, who do you like more? If you could only listen to one, who would you choose, Beethoven or the Beatles? And the professor said, well, I love the Beatles, but after you've listened to the White Album a hundred times, you can exhaust it. But Beethoven, you can never exhaust Beethoven. <laughs> that was for Nick. Uh, we have been in a series called Jesus Unexpected, the Gospel of Luke. And this week, this month, beginning last week, actually Nick preached on the first parable we looked at. We're, this little mini-series within the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' Greatest Hits, His Parables. Last week, Luke, uh, Nick looked at the parable of the sower, or the parable of the four soils. Today, we examine the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the best-known and many ways loved stories in the history of the world, in all of world literature. I mean, even if you're first time in any church, I'm willing to bet you have a sense of this story. You know its outlines. You have the theme in your mind, the Good Samaritan. I mean, how many hospitals are named Good Samaritan? How many awards Good Samaritan? You reply to somebody as a Good Samaritan, right? Outside of Super Bowls, the most watched program in the last 25 years of American TV uh, was the Seinfeld finale. The Seinfeld finale. And Seinfeld, for those of you under a certain age, was a really famous show that a lot of people watch at the same time every week. But it's hard to explain that now. Uh, but Seinfeld, Seinfeld was a show about a group of vacuous 30-something single people in Manhattan who are quite selfish and do a lot of nothing. Uh, but in the last episode, the very last episode, many, many millions of Americans tuned in. Their plane is diverted to Massachusetts, and they're on a sidewalk randomly, and they witness someone literally being beat up across the street. And they fail to cross the street to help that person, even as that person cries out for help. And they actually end up being arrested under a good Samaritan law. I've always felt like it was the creators, uh, Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld, scolding us for liking these characters in this show so much. In many ways, it's a parabolic retelling of the Good Samaritan on American TV. Now, parables are powerful and they're enduring. Uh, because Jesus wanted to touch our hearts and open our minds, he told stories. But the thing about a parable is you never, ever, ever, you have never really ever get it. These stories are like a Beethoven symphony or a great painting. Every time you hear, every time you look, there is something new. There is something fresh. In many ways, the parables are like a loose-cut diamond in your hand that as you circle it around, you always see a different refraction of light. You can never exhaust it. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to drive soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so it is with parables. They're like flashing swords in the hands of a great swordsman, stabbing to awaken us to something that we have missed, something often that we have missed about ourselves. The greatest example of the function of parables, what they do, is actually from the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 12, King David, in the previous chapter, in 2 Samuel 12, this is 900 years before Jesus, 2 Samuel 12, King David has coveted and taken a man's wife to be his own, a woman named Bathsheba. 
And because he's the head of the army, he orchestrates it so that that husband is killed in battle. And David does not realize he has done anything wrong until a prophet named Nathan comes to him and tells a parable, a story. The story tells is of two men. One is a rich man with vast herds and flocks and great wealth. And a second man who is a poor man who only has one little lamb that he loves. The story says that the lamb drank from his cup and slept in his arms. But this rich guy has a visitor from out of town and he needs to make a feast. But instead of taking one from his own great flock and his own great wealth, he took the poor man's lamb and kills it so that he can serve a feast. And it says that David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan said, you are the man. David was undone. He saw himself clearly as the rich man who had taken another man's wife. That's what a parable does. It stabs us. It allows us to see ourselves more clearly. They undo us, parables do. They expose us. It's like they flick away the armor, but not to harm us, but to heal us. Nathan told that parable to David that David might repent and live a new, a renewed life. So today in this most famous of stories, I want to take this loose diamond and I just want to roll it around in my hand and I want to allow the light to flash. What do you see about yourself What do you see about the gospel of God in Christ as we roll this diamond around? Now, let me give some context, some background. Where we are in Luke's narrative is Luke chapter 10. That's significant because in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus turned and faced Jerusalem. He said, actually, the text is like a flint. He set himself to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem where he will suffer and die. The rest of the book is about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, and we are in that journey, in that travel log. In fact, the story that Jesus tells, the story of the Good Samaritan, is on this road from, Jerus- from Jericho to Jerusalem, and actually Jesus, in just a few weeks after he tells this story, will walk that exact route into Jerusalem. He'll pass through Jericho, and he will ascend to Jerusalem. Now I say ascend because the road between these two cities is 17 miles long. And there's a 3,000, a 3,300 foot elevation gain from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so in this story, he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now that road is filled because it's so, uh, there's so much elevation change, it's filled with rocky crags, easy for thieves and brigands to hang out and assault people. It was a roadway that was notorious for crime. There's actually one particular spot was known as the Pass of Blood because there'd been so much violent activity there. As for Jews and Samaritans, you may have heard this, but they hated each other. The Jews lived mostly, I'm I'm painting with a broad brunch here, but Jews lived mostly to the south at this time, and they had kept pure, which is to say they had not intermarried, they had not intermarried with other people groups. And they also honored 39 books of the Jewish scriptures. They had a temple at Jerusalem. The Samaritans largely lived to the north. They were considered by the Jews to be half-breeds because they had intermarried with local people. They only honored the first five books of the Jewish scriptures called the Torah, the first five books. And they had built a temple at Gerizim. Now, both 
the Jews and the Samaritans considered themselves children of Abraham, and they detested each other. A couple of uh, examples of their hatred. In 128 B.C., about 150-ish years before this story was told, the Jews had destroyed the temple, the Samaritan temple at Gerizim. About 30 years before this story, around 9 or 6 B.C., they're not sure exactly when, the Samaritans had desecrated the temple at Jerusalem by placing human bones around the temple, thus making it ceremoniously unclean and preventing the celebration of the great Jewish feast of Passover. Now, if you're thinking geographically, and we've seen a lot of maps of this part of the world lately, basically, again, broad stroke, Samaria is basically where the West Bank is today. That's basically what Samaria was. And the Jews of Jesus' time, like Israelis today, would go the long route around Samaria, rather around the West Bank, rather than pass through to get to the north, to get to Galilee. Now, modern Palestinians are not the descendants of the Samaritans. But the passion, the hatred, the violence we see today is a very clear echo. It is not a rhetorical flourish on my part to think if Jesus were here today retelling this story, it would be the story of the good Palestinian in Israel, the good Russian in Ukraine, the good Chinese in Taiwan. Jesus is being deliberately provocative. He is touching a sore spot. So what happens? A religious leader, a lawyer, it says, an expert in the law, verse 25, look with me, he comes and tries to test Jesus. And he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This was the great Jewish question. Jesus puts the question back to him. He says, how do you read the law? The lawyer gives an answer that is not only good, it is exactly right, 100%. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, your neighbor yourself. Love, your, love God and love neighbor yourself. And what he has done is brilliant theology, this lawyer. He is taking something from Leviticus 19 and something from Deuteronomy. He has sewn them together and summarized the law. It's so good that this is exactly how Jesus himself, a few weeks later, will summarize the law. In verse uh, 20. Uh, uh, verse 28, Jesus says, you have given a good answer. And then a few weeks later, Jesus will give this exact same answer to the question, how do you summarize the law? Look at Matthew 12, Mark 20, uh, Matthew 22, Mark 12. This guy's a great theologian. This is a keen insight. This is a great example to riff on Walker Percy that you can make straight A's in Sunday school. You can make straight A's in seminary and flunk ordinary Christian living. Because the lawyer's not done. He wants to justify himself. So verse 29, he asks, who is my neighbor? And with that, Jesus gives us this story, the gift of this story of the good Samaritan. And in so doing, he wields his board to expose and to heal us. Now, there's five characters or groups of characters. There's the robbers. There's the man in the ditch. There's the religious leaders. There's the Samaritan and the innkeeper. And what I want to do, <laughs> just turning this thing over again and again, is to look at all five of those groups, a couple of them very briefly. In whom do you see yourself in these five characters? First, let's talk about the robbers. We don't talk about these uh, folks much because we don't think of ourselves as violent. But there is a form of disengagement, there is a form of inactivity that can be a form of violence, of exclusion. 
I'll give an example on myself. I remember being at a party, this is many years ago, almost 20 years ago now, where someone, and we were in a large group of people, a circle, and somebody said something that was just blatantly and horrifically racist. And no one, including me, said anything. I just kind of slinked away. And make no mistake, the silence and the comment were forms of active exclusion. To let this story do its work, you have to be willing to see yourself as capable of the violence of these robbers. Disengagement, inactivity can be a form of violence and exclusion. But second, the group I want to look at, at the end of the story, the innkeeper. Don't talk much about him. This is an onlooker who doesn't shy away from helping. He even makes it his business. The way the story is told, the innkeeper is likely a Jew. So he is here coming alongside a Samaritan to help. He was just doing his job, and it helped. It mattered. It counts. What are ways that in your... I'm not talking about pro bono work. I'm talking about in your job. What are ways that your work can serve those in need? What are ways that your work can tear down racial and socioeconomic boundaries and walls at your workplace? But let's get to the main characters. The religious leaders, I'm going to combine them. It's a priest and a Levite. A Levite is basically an assistant priest. In both cases, it says almost the exact same thing. When they saw him, they passed by on the other side. They saw him, passed on the other side. These were religious professionals, and you would expect religious professionals to be more empathetic. I mean, religious professionals are kind of like the highest form of humanity, right? <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't resist. That was a joke. Um, we're the worst. But anyway, um, what they saw was a bloody mass of humanity. Someone who was either dead or dying. And they passed by. It does not say why they passed by. Perhaps they did not want to get up close. I mean, have you ever been in a situation where you have a friend in the hospital injured so badly that it hurts to look at them? You don't want to go to the hospital because it just hurts to see them. Perhaps they thought there was nothing they could do. Perhaps, like maybe you and I, they did a certain calculation. If I cross over, maybe it's a trap. The robbers are going to get me. If, in fact, the, the man had been dead, if he'd been a corpse, and they may have thought that based on the way he looked, if they had touched him, they would have been made ceremoniously unclean. They would be forced to enter the ancient form of, of, of a COVID protocol, right? Because if they had touched a dead body, they'd have to quarantine themselves, remove themselves. There would have been a social cost in doing that, removing self from friends and family. There would have been a professional cost. They would not have been able to serve in the temple. They were both religious professionals. And because there was a social and professional cost, they might have lost money. It would have been a financial inconvenience. Helping this guy was very inconvenient socially, professionally, financially. But they passed by, which is to say they left the man in the ditch. And what they were saying is this person is not worthy of my attention, his problems, he himself is below me. That's what they're doing. They are saying this person is excluded from the circle of humanity. Not worth my time. Now there's lots of ways we pass by. There's the literal passing by. I've told this story before, but it just is so vivid in my mind. 
I was on a mission trip in New York City in college, and we had been on the Lower East Side. Most of you know Manhattan's geography. We'd been at a food bank, at a mobile food bank on the Lower East Side, and we had come across a homeless woman, and we were trying to get her to a shelter in Midtown. So we're going from the Lower East Side to Midtown, trying to get to a train. There's not many trains on the Lower East Side. And um, so we're with this homeless woman, and as we were passing through Soho, kind of outside of NYU, and as we passed by, there was a, a person drunk passed out on the street on his, on his face. And my instinct, not even, a, I hardly even looked. I just started to swerve to go by. I, like, I'm not going to. But this homeless woman, she stopped. She rolled him over, made sure he was okay. And then we continued to the homeless shelter. I just passed by. Another way. I have been reading uh, the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf. You've heard me quote him before. I've been reading his book, Exclusion and Embrace. That actually could be a title for this parable, Exclusion and Embrace. And Miroslav Volf's an interesting guy. He is Croatian, raised in Croatia. And he writes this book uh, in the late 1990s reflecting on the war in the Balkans where the Serbians literally tried to exterminate his people, the Croatians. And he writes the question, how can I embrace someone who is trying to crush me, who is trying to annihilate my people group? It's like asking the question, how can a German Jew in World War II embrace a Nazi? And he goes through several ways that we exclude people. Uh, Miroslav Volf now lives in America. He teaches at Yale. And he writes this. Bear with me. The manner in which the suburbs relate to inner cities by abandoning them can become like the priest and the Levite in the Good Samaritan, simply crossing to the other side and minding our own business. End quote. And ouch. But let your defenses down for just a second. Trust me as your pastor. The North Shore was created about 150 years ago to get away from the messiness of Chicago. Largely kind of first immigrants, northern Europeans, to get away from people who were uh, part of the Industrial Revolution. You know, the reason there's a half-day road is because in the 19th century, it was a half-day away from Chicago. Now, there is no shame that we live here. I'm proud to live on the North Shore. But let's not abandon Chicago. Let's not abandon Chicago. Let's love this city, whether it's through safe families, whether it's through loving the 20,000 migrants who have come to our city in the last year, the impoverished, the violence. Let's love this city and not just be consumers of it. Let's not abandon Chicago. But as good as Miroslav Volf is, Lucila Ruiz may be better. Many of you know Lucila. She's here today in the nursery serving. She's a quiet servant of our church. Her husband, Mario, is our custodian. Sundays she works in the nurseries. Weekdays she helps to clean this building. Uh, my office is right by the nursery, so oftentimes I will hear her cleaning, wiping down the toys, disinfecting the toys so that our children can be safe. On Friday, she was in the building. I know she's a woman of faith. She's a friend. So I said, Lucille, I'm teaching on the Good Samaritan. What do you think of the Good Samaritan? And she said this, maybe we cannot do big things, but we can do small things for the people in our lives. Do we need to find ways to engage our city? Of course. But there are needs aplenty right in this room, right at your breakfast table. There are lonely folks. There are people who behind a very beautiful cover, beautiful clothes, beautiful look, beautiful houses are hurting terribly. Students, 
There are folks in the lunchroom on your campus who are desperately lonely, whose families are being shredded, who have been slammed on social media. There are needs everywhere at your breakfast table next to you today in the pew. Just remember, be kind. Everyone you meet, everyone you meet is fighting a battle. There is likely someone with whom you shook hands today. Maybe it's you. He may not be face down lying in a pool of their own blood, but they feel that way. They're lonely. They're depressed. They're grief-stricken. They have chronic pain. They are addicted to something, and they don't know a way out. Let's open our eyes, cross over, take the risk, which is to say, be a good Samaritan. Now, verse 33, let's look at the good Samaritan. We've considered these religious professionals. The good Samaritan, just look what he does in verse 33 and following. He saw, he had compassion, he went over, he crossed over, he bound up his wounds, set him on his animal, brought him to an end, he cared for him. And when he left the next day, he paid for his, his continued care. You see, the lawyer asked who was his neighbor. Jesus answers by telling him how to be a neighbor. And he points to this Samaritan. Who in your life needs neighbor love? There will always be strangers in ditches, and we owe them this neighboring. But who is close that needs your love? Who needs a love bomb in your life today? Now, Jesus said of himself in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. To be a Jesus follower is to give, to serve, to love. Now, I don't know what you're feeling right now. I bet some of you are like, man, I feel guilty. I got to do better. And maybe you do. Maybe I do. But let me tell you something. Guilt won't help you. It, won't, it may last for a little bit, but guilt will not sustain you. Guilt is not what motivated the Samaritan. Did you see what motivated him? It was He looked at him and had compassion. He crossed the road and took care of this guy because of compassion. The only way you will live like this is love. But how on earth, how on earth do you grow your love? Like, you can't just, like, do this. Just, you know, don't be racist, don't be stingy. How do you grow love, especially for your enemies? Well, there's one character we hadn't talked about yet. It's the man in the ditch. It's the man in the ditch. Tim Keller says this about this parable. The key to this parable is that the religious person has been placed inside the parable, specifically the religious person, the lawyer has been placed in that ditch. Because if Jesus had said there was a religious lawyer riding along on a horse and he saw a beaten up Samaritan on the side of the road and he got off and he took care of him, that would have been a high bar, but it would have been moralism to this lawyer. He would have been wagging his finger saying, don't be racist, don't be stingy. But instead, what does Jesus do? He puts the Israelite in the ditch and the Samaritan in the saddle. In this story, the lawyer is bleeding, dying in the ditch, utterly dependent, in need of someone to show up and take care of him, someone to show up and give him grace. You see, by putting the lawyer in, by extension, you and me, he puts us, Jesus does, in that ditch. Jesus is teaching that before you can extend neighbor love, you must experience neighbor love. 
before you can be a good Samaritan, you must have someone be a good neighbor to you. Radical neighbor love can only be a response to free grace. Only when you see the true neighbor can you become a true neighbor. John 1.14 is one of the more famous verses in the Bible. The way the ESV that we have in our pews translated, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love that translation. But I think more evocative is the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. He says, the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. Jesus became one of us and he moved into our neighborhood, which is to say Jesus became our neighbor. He was God over all the creator, but he took on flesh. He became one of us, a human. He moved into our neighborhood, became our neighbor, our good Samaritan. And not only did he risk everything, he gave everything. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 says, while we were his enemies, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. And he just keeps giving. He gives his life. He gives the gift of the Spirit, which is to say he gives the gift of himself to us. He gives us everything we have, our material blessings, our spiritual gifts and graces. He gives everything. All God is is gift. God is love. And the essence of love is giving. Jesus is the great Samaritan, and he comes to us in the ditches of our life that we might experience the greatness of neighbor love. And as we experience the greatness of neighbor love, we are enabled to extend that neighbor love. And friends, the only way you're going to grow your neighbor love is that you experience more and more of that neighbor love of God who has given his son for you. So in conclusion, we've rolled this diamond around. We've rolled, where, where have you seen yourself? Where has the light struck you? Where has the sword pierced? I have two hopes for you and for me as you hear this story. First, that you think of someone to drop a love bomb on, to surprise them with your love, to be a good Samaritan. Who is it for you? But second, that you would know just how much you would have been loved. Not just know it, but that you would feel it that you would experience it, and that as we come to this table, which is a demonstration of love, that you would taste it, the love of God, the neighbor love of God, that as we experience it, allows us to extend it to a world that desperately needs that kind of love. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that in the religious genius of your son, he told stories. He told stories that never grow old and are ever fresh, ever new. And as we have looked at this story, this consummate story, I pray that we would as much as give love, more than that, so that we can give love, experience, and know your love. For Christ's sake we pray.